Welcome to Human Circus. In the 1280s, Argun Khan, Lord of the Ilkhanate, might well have given hard thought to his situation and to his family's recent past. His father, Abaka, Kublai Khan's nephew, had died in 1282, the final years of his reign and life, consumed with an ultimately unsuccessful campaign against the Mamluks in Syria. Argun's uncle had been Abaka's successor and had sought to deal with the Mamluks in a different way reaching out to their sultan as one Muslim ruler to another, asking for their submission. But after only two years, that uncle was gone. Opposition to his Islamization of the Khanate and the violent uprising of Argun himself, having led to his displacement and death. And Argun Khan, great-great-grandson of Genghis Khan, stepped into power. His way was very much that of his father. Like Abaka before him, he seems to have viewed the Mamluks as a threat that might better be overcome with Latin Christian cooperation. Abaka had been in communications with then Prince Edward on crusade. His envoys had gone to Pope Gregory X's Council of Lyon in 1274, and in 1276 and 77, to the court of Philip III in France, and that of King Edward I in England. They'd been to see Pope John XXI before his brief papacy was cut short by a collapsing ceiling, then to Edmund again, and to the crusader states of Tripoli, Cyprus, and Acre, ahead of the 1281 push against the Mamluks. But he'd had little to show for it in the end, perhaps only the aid of some knights hospitallers. If Argun were now going to succeed against his rivals in Egypt, he would need to do better than that. His first attempt in that direction was a 1285 message delivered by a Christian astronomer to Pope Honorius IV. The message referenced the Khan's mother's Christianity, his family's history as defenders of Christians, and his charge from Kublai to seize and hold, quote, the land of the Christians under his protection. And it continued with something like this. As the land of the Muslims, that is, Syria and Egypt, is placed between us and you, We will encircle and strangle it. We will send our messengers to ask you to send an army to Egypt, so that us on one side, and you on the other, we can, with good warriors, take it over. Let us know through secure messengers when you would like this to happen. We will drive out the Saracens with the help of the Lord, the Pope, and the Great Khan. And then... Less than two years later, with nothing concrete to show for that first attempt, Argun was again looking for an alliance. This time, he would send a man known as Raban Barsoma, and that is who we'll be talking about today. Hello and welcome. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, following medieval travelers and the broader histories their stories wove through. Before we get going, I'd like to request that if it's an option for you, and if you are enjoying the podcast, appreciate the hilariously long hours that go into each of these 50 minutes, and place some value on what you hear, that you consider signing up to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash humancircus, or through the website at humancircuspodcast.com. 
There are one, three, and five dollar options. And honestly, if I could get 10% of you to join in at the one dollar option, it really would make a substantial difference in my life. In other Patreon related news, I'd also like to send special thank yous out to my newest Patreon supporters, Stian Skarspa Solheim, who I hope will forgive my clumsy pronunciation, and Andy Alexander. Thank you both very much. And now, to the story. I've talked before on this podcast about the journey between Europe and Eastern Asia, as far as China. I've followed the stories of friars and merchants going off to see the Mongols, and those have been some of my favorites so far. Today, I'm covering something related, but something a little bit different from those other travelers. I'd considered doing this as part of the Marco Polo series, or right after, but at the time, I felt like a break from the Mongol world. Felt like maybe if you'd been listening all the way through, you could use a bit of a palate cleanser too. But it's time to get back to the Mongols, only this time to follow a traveler going in the other direction from all those friars, to trace his steps from the Mongol Empire to the cities of Europe on imperial business, to tell the story of Roban Barsoma and his protege, Marcos. In the preface to the 2010 edition of his book on our subject, Historian Morris Rusabi mentions that his friends had urged him to use the title From Beijing to Paris, a reverse Marco Polo, but that he had resisted their suggestions. He recognized that the title might grab readers' attention, but he said that the comparison to the much more famous Venetian, the framing of this story as that of a Turkic Marco Polo out of the East, would, quote, slight Raban Soma's mission that the Marco Polo reference would undersell the significance of Barsauma, for the latter's voyage had greater potential to change the course of Eurasian history. As we'll see, that wasn't just the standard case of a writer setting out the colossal nature of their particular pet topic. Barsauma's story is as important as it is fascinating. Even the story of how the text comes to us is an interesting one. Barsauma's account had been translated into Syriac with some deletions, sometime soon after his death. But then both versions seemed to have disappeared. There were brief references to his presence in the accounts of the Vatican and in France and England, but nothing to draw much interest, and nothing in the Chinese sources. Barsauma's doings might have remained unnoticed for longer still, were it not for a chance encounter between a Mr. Solomon of northwestern Iran and a young Turkish man in the spring of 1887. The young man had a Syriac manuscript he invited Solomon to see, and Solomon saw it at once for what it was, a thing of interest. He had it copied and shared with a specialist, and out of the publicity that followed that discovery, another manuscript was turned up. Raban Barsauma, long sleeping, had resurfaced. The journey he took started as a pilgrimage, and then, after long years of delay, developed into something else, an embassy which revealed the changing nature of the Mongol Empire, and a fascinating look at medieval Europe from the outside in. So let's get started. Let's go back, before the beginning of his travels, to his early life. Who was Raban Barsauma? To answer that question, we shouldn't look first to the western cities he visited, such as Rome or Paris. We shouldn't look to Baghdad or some other site within the Ilkhanate. 
we should look much further east, to China, to the region of what had been called Zhengdu, of what would be known as Kanbalik, Daidu, or Dadu, what is now known to many, many more people as Beijing. That was where our protagonist is said to have been born and grown up, and that's where we'll find him. But first, his parents, because pretty much uniquely among the texts I cover here, this one actually tells us a little about them. Quote, There was a certain man who was a believer, and he was a nobleman and a fearer of God. He was rich in the things of this world, and he was well endowed with the qualities of nature. He belonged to a famous family and a well-known tribe. His name was Shiban, the inspector. He dwelt in the royal city in the country of the east. He married, according to the law, a woman whose name was Kayamta. And you might be wondering, with this mention of believers and fears of God, what beliefs and what God were being referred to? Shiban and Kiamta are sometimes identified as Uyghurs, sometimes as Onguts, but always as Christians. In particular, they were what are commonly called Nestorians, though as I think I've mentioned in the Mongol or Marco Polo series, that is a term imposed from the outside— a name that refers back to one-time Patriarch of Constantinople, Nestorius, and his teachings, which were deemed heretical at the 431 Council of Ephesus. We might instead use the Chinese term Jingzhao, the luminous religion, or call it Syriac Christianity. We might say they were Arkagun, a Mongol term for Christians, though there's not much then there to set them apart from Latin Christians, or that they were Yelikowen, a term for Christians under the Yuan dynasty. The terminology I'll be using here is to say that they were of the Church of the East, and I won't be covering this here and now, but that church had a long and interesting history in China, one which can be traced back at least to the year 781 and to a monument erected for a patriarch of the religion of the Roman Empire. Now. Some 450 years later, Arshiban and Kiamta wanted themselves a child, but none was forthcoming. They prayed constantly to God to provide for them, and, quote, Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him that knocks, it is opened. It's written that God interceded, that a child miraculously was born around 1225. They named him Barsauma. The term Rabban would be applied later, like rabbi, a term for a teacher. His name meant the son of the fast, referring to self-imposed deprivation rather than speed. And a pious picture of his early days started to take shape, one of strict chastity and humility, and looking every bit as much a hagiography as anything else. Barsalma's parents saw him educated, and when the time was right, sent to a teacher, and then betrothed to an appropriate match, all proceeding as they thought best for him. He became a priest and a keeper in the church, and all was going according to plan. But then, at twenty years old, his devotion took a turn which made his parents less happy. Quote, he cast away forthwith the shadow of the world, and renounced straight away the desirable things thereof. He esteemed dainty meats as things which had no existence, and he rejected wholly the drinks which make a man drunk. It was, to be clear, not just charcuterie and artisanal liquors which Barsalma was turning from. It was the things of this world more generally, 
and among them, that marriage his parents had arranged for him, for unlike priests, a monk had to be celibate. And that really seems to be the main issue here. In the text, they mourn that their son was separating himself from them, but the primary worry that comes across is that there would be no one then to continue the family line and to inherit what was theirs. Who, they demanded, was then to be the master of their toil's results. Their arguments worked for a while, moving Barsoma sufficiently for him to remain living with them, but he was only outwardly convinced, and in that only for three years. That was when he divided up his things and he gave them to the poor. His wedding was called off, he was welcomed as a monk, and for the next seven years he took himself off to a cell, away from the family and community concerned with this world. But still, he felt himself too much of that world, too entangled in its shadowy distractions, and kept from his calling. He found a mountain cave next to a spring, and a day's journey from his parents' city, and he settled into a life of asceticism. He was removed from any distraction, and also, as you may be thinking, very removed from any path by which you'd expect him to one day traverse the length of the Eurasian continent. But that was coming still. It was in 1260, while Barsoma was living his cave-bound life, that he met a man who seems to have diverted that life, the same man who would journey from the east to one day sit as patriarch in the city of Baghdad. There had been others, as ever was the case when you just wanted to go off on your own and be a hermit. People heard of this wise man of the mountain, and they came to sit before him and hear him speak. They honored him, so that the mountainside maybe became a bit of a busy place at times, or so I like to imagine at least. But one particular visitor, born to the name Marcos and into the family of an archdeacon, was a little bit different from the rest. From what the text tells us, Marcos had always been an eager student, surpassing his older brothers and then his teachers, and then looking ever further afield. He'd heard of this Barsoma too, but it was far, too far for a young man of about fifteen years old who'd never traveled alone. It seems that his community and his family pressed him to give up on his idea. However, his mind was not changed by their pressing. For all their attempts, they felt as if they were speaking to a statue rather than to a rational man, and Marcos wasn't discouraged. He traveled fifteen hard days to Barsoma's cave and declared himself there ready to live, to learn, and as was his goal, to become a monk. My son, from where did you come? asked Barsalma. And how did it happen that you have come to this mountain? In what city do your kinsfolk dwell? Who is your father, and whose son are you? The monk did his best to dissuade his young visitor, probably listing some of the reasons his parents had once given to him. But perhaps seeing a little of himself in Marcos, he eventually allowed him to stay. He clothed him in wool, taught him, and only three years of ascetic labor later saw him take his monastic vows. And there in the cave, their life may have remained. Had it not been for one of them, probably Marcos, musing aloud, it would be exceedingly helpful to us if we were to leave this region and set out for the West, for we could then visit the tombs of the holy martyrs and Catholic fathers and be blessed by them. And if Christ, the Lord of the universe, prolonged our lives and sustained us by his grace, 
we could go to Jerusalem, so that we might receive complete pardon for our offenses and absolution for our sins of foolishness. And after this quick break, we'll find out what came of that proposal. At first, Barsalma was very much against Marco's idea to go visiting abroad. He tried to impress upon him the difficulties of the journey, its great length, the dangers of transcontinental travel in the 13th century, which, Pax Mongolica or no Pax Mongolica, were many. But Marcos had a vision, specifically a vision of the West and the spiritual treasures that waited for him there. And he persisted. The two of them agreed that whatever might come, they ought not to be separated, even if that meant that one must choose some evil for himself to keep them together. Finally, as you may have already guessed, Barsalma was the one to make that sacrifice. It was about 1275, sometime around the year, that Marco Polo was said to have arrived in the region. And to situate that on the Mongol timeline, that was four years after Kublai Khan had established the Yuan dynasty in China, but a year before the surrender there of the Southern Song. It had been some ten years since his brother Arik Bok's surrender had marked the conclusion of the Tuluid civil war over control of the Khanate with Kublai the victor. But his cousin Kaidu of the House of Ogadai still threatened. Kaidu's long-running war on Kublai bursting again to the forefront in 1275 with new invasions. Such was the situation as our two monks began the move west. But first, the resolve would be tested, because of course it would. What kind of story would this be if it were not? After giving away what possessions they had to the poor, they left their mountain cave for the city, looking to join up with a caravan or find escorts, and to gather provisions for a long trip ahead. However, once the Christians there heard of their plan, they did not think it was a good one. Do you not know how far away your destination is, they asked, gathering around in a kind of intervention. Have you not heard, or have you just forgotten, the danger of the road and the fact that you will never arrive? Why not instead stay where you are and perform works here where you have been called to do so? But the monks replied that they had withdrawn from this world already, and neither toil nor death troubled them at all. They asked only for these people's prayers that their desires to reach Jerusalem be fulfilled. Then, leaving in peace, they traveled on. The next recorded stop in our text, though there must have been many others, was the one where Marco's family lived, Kosheng in our source, sometimes identified as Marco Polo's Tenduk. It's a fascinating place where excavations have uncovered a walled settlement with wooden houses and palaces elaborate gardens, Chinese tile, and crosses. And here, too, the monks' plans were not happily received. They themselves were very welcome, as the Christians of the city and the monks' parents came out to greet them with joy. But as it emerged that Marcos had not returned to be close to his family again, and was instead departing for a horribly distant land from which he was never likely to return, they were deeply saddened and did not offer their encouragement. The trip was not proving to be a popular one. 
And next up in the chorus of disapproval, in some versions of the story at least, was a pair of more powerful voices. This time it wasn't parents. It was the lords of the city who'd heard of this odd pair passing through their territory and called them in to hear more about it. And these were not your average commanders of a regional outpost. They were members of Mongol royalty, sons by marriage to the great Kublai Khan. And they wanted to know why these peculiar men would ever want to leave their wonderful homeland. Why are you going west, they asked. We have taken very great trouble to draw hither monks and fathers from the west. How can we allow you to go away? It was an interesting question, especially as an indication of the deliberate effort to collect literate men from afar. Remember Niccolo and Maffeo Polo being asked to bring back 100 Christian scholars as another example. But what could our monks give by way of an answer? What they had to say was something like this. Quote, We have cast away the world, and as long as we live in the society of men, there will be no peace to us. Therefore, it is right that we should flee because of the love of Christ, who gave himself unto death for our redemption. Whatsoever is in the world, we have cast behind us. Although your love moves us not to depart, and your gracious goodness would hold us fast, and your alms are bestowed upon us lavishly, and although it is grateful to us to sojourn with you, we remember the Lord's word which saith, What shall it profit a man if he possesses the whole world and loses his soul? And what shall a man give as a substitute for his soul? We earnestly desire the separation, but wherever we shall be, we shall always remember, according to our feebleness, both by night and by day, your kingdom in our prayers. Seeing they would not be held unless by force, the two lords now offered gifts of rugs, gold and silver, and animals for transport. And at first, the monks would not accept the gifts, for what were they to do with worldly things of which they had no need? As the lords pointed out in response, they very clearly could and should use those worldly things. The two monks did not know what the two lords did, that the path ahead was a dangerous and expensive one. The climates they made to pass through would be extreme, the risk of natural disaster substantial, and the potential for a violent death considerable. There were levies to be paid, the travelers' protection money, and there was food needed for six months or more with every potential for the or more to extend pretty much indefinitely. They would need those gifts, and if they did not, well, they could just distribute them among the monasteries they found at their destination. Unable to argue with all of that, Barsalma and Marcos took the gifts and took their leave, going then from the city and continuing the journey west. In some versions of this story, There's no mention of their being sponsored by Mongol royalty. In others, Kublai himself was the sponsor, giving them clothes which they were to baptize in the Jordan River and then place upon the sepulcher of Jesus. But whether it was he or his extended family members, it seems pretty clear that somebody subsidized the trip. And somebody who required no financial return, too. And that sounds like royalty, like people who could afford the costs and be content with diplomatic or religious returns on their investment, and who could also supply them with letters of safe passage. In his discussion of the traveler's requirements, Maurice Rusabi talks about what was needed to facilitate the journey, 
Camel grooms, interpreters, baggage handlers, cooks and guards, the pack animals themselves, and new escorts for each distinct leg of the journey. For all that the monks insist in our source that they are simple men with only spiritual needs, some twelve to forty other men might have been involved in getting them where they were going. The monks and their party, whoever may have been included in it, traveled southwest along the Helan Mountains, south of the Gobi Desert. They met fellow Christians and finally found communities that were supportive of their quest, greeting them with warmth and then showering them with gifts to aid them. On they went, the next stretch taking them along what's sometimes called the Southern Silk Road, south of the terrifying Taklamakan Desert, the Sea of Death. They avoided the worst of the desert, but still it was a toilsome and fatiguing journey of two months. The region was barren, barren, and it was without inhabitants. It was largely without water, too. The text reporting that during those two months, there were only eight days when with some difficulty they managed to find some to fill their skins. Sandstorms were frequently reported in the region, and heat-induced hallucinations, too, which in a place that allowed no margin for error, might easily lead to death. By good fortune or good guidance, our monks would not succumb to either one. They'd be traveling through to Hotan. That oasis town had long traded on its rich resources in black and white jade, had traded with the Chinese as far back as 200 BCE, and had later developed into a major Buddhist center and an important link in the spread of that religion. Over time, and after conquest by the Turkic Karakhanids and then the Mongols, it had become something else. Marco Polo had reported its population to be entirely Muslim, but the place the monks arrived at was home to a variety of languages and religions, and though the text makes no mention of it, they must have found some friendly faces they could stay with, because they were stuck there for six months, a helpful reminder, if any were needed, of how little control you sometimes had over your own timetable when regional conflict got in the way. We read that the caravan routes were cut by war between Kublai's forces and some local commander, that grain was scarce, and that many starved as a result. Fighting between Kaidu and Kublai had come to the area, and Barsauma and Marcos were witness to some of the results as they went on to Kashgar. Marco Polo had also been to Kashgar himself, and written of vibrant markets for trade and craft, beautiful gardens, vines, and fruit trees and the monks would have known it as home to a metropolitan sea of their church. But the city, they found, was emptied of inhabitants and had been picked over and plundered. There was nothing and no one there for them, but at least they themselves were not attacked. And they would find some help on that front, just up the road, in the camp of Kaidu. They'd reach him by a somewhat circuitous route, adding further weeks to the journey and fording a river but evading the violence that was all around them in the land. They found Kaidu in Talas, where forces of the Umayyad Caliphate had once clashed with the Tang Chinese, and where they were now going to need to be a little bit clever in order to come away safely. Kaidu Khan, just to review, was head of the House of Ogadai, and for long stretches held sway over the Chagatayad Khanate too. He was something of Kublai Khan's personal nemesis during his reign, a tireless adversary even outliving Kublai himself, to carry on the war against the great Khan's son. That was who the monks appeared before to ask for assistance, an imposing figure, one who seems to have wished them no harm, 
but one who was no friend to the rulers they left in their homeland, or those of the Ilkhanate where they were bound. They could not afford to appear to be too friendly to either, and they seemed to have done well for themselves. Having prayed for the Khan and his Khanate, they came away from the meeting with an order of safe passage through his realms. And it was an order which it sounds like they badly needed. The text is not specific here, but there is mention of their traveling in a state of exhaustion to which fear was added. They would have traversed difficult mountain landscapes where the cold winds, altitude, and avalanches all threatened, and then deserts and bandits too. They would have passed the skeletons of fellow travelers and their pack animals. And when they came to Khorasan, where present-day northeastern Iran spills into Afghanistan, they had somehow lost much of what they had with them on the road. Though whether that was due to bad weather or banditry, it doesn't say. When Barsoma and Marcos arrived at Tus, something of a Khorasanian capital for the Ilkhanate, they would have found a town that was again thriving following its Mongol devastation. According to Giovanni, the 13th century historian, the city had been reduced to nothing but the name, and there was not more than 50 habitable houses in the whole town, and even those scattered, one here, one there, in odd corners. The Mongol governors had not left the town in that state for long, though. During the 1240s, they'd worked to rebuild it, complete with gardens, parks, and a restored palace. But our monks indicate none of this, only that they stayed in a nearby monastery where they were welcomed by fellow Christians, and that they were grateful to God for having delivered them from the worst of their journey's dangers. There were, they hoped, much easier times ahead, with brigandry, inter-Mongol warfare, and some of the more perilous features of the Central Asian landscape now safely behind. We'll be having a look at those times ahead in just a moment. After this short break. Barsalma and Marcos were in Ilkhanate territory, passing between the Dashti Kavir Desert and the Caspian Sea, heading for Azerbaijan. They had planned from there to travel south to Baghdad and to meet the head of their church, Patriarch Mardenha, but it turned out that they wouldn't need to go that far to see him. In the spring of 1280, he was in Maraka, the site of Hulagu's capital and of Nasir al-Din al-Tusi's magnificent observatory, where astronomers from as far afield as Spain and China studied and contributed to an immense library of knowledge. When our monks came before their patriarch there, quote, at the sight of him their joy grew great, and their gladness was increased, and their minds were made at peace, and their anxious thoughts were set at rest. And they fell down on the ground before him, and they wept as they did homage to him, and they behaved as if they saw our Lord Jesus Christ in the person of Mardenha, the Catholicus. May his memory be for blessing. And when they had spoken, the patriarch looked and wondered, and he asked, Where have you come from? From Khan Balik, they answered, from the city of the king of kings, Kublai Khan. We have come to be blessed by you, and by the fathers and the monks and the holy men of this quarter of the world. And if a road opens to us, and God has mercy upon us, we shall go to Jerusalem. Over the next few days, I'm sure they rested themselves and recovered from their long journey, and they met regularly with Mardenha, 
They ask permission from him to go on to Baghdad, to see its religious sites and receive blessings, and to visit the monasteries of the land. And they were given permission, letters of introduction, and a guide to take them that way. Baghdad, like Tus, had quite recently suffered under a Mongol invasion. The sack of the city in 1258, by the armies of Kublai's brother Hulagu, had been a horrifying affair. It's written that the three days of pillage and general slaughter had perhaps been provoked by attacks on Mongol envoys and the caliph's unwillingness to immediately surrender, though there is some disagreement over exactly how indiscriminate the killing had been. I'd love to have seen a little of Baghdad, as it was just over two decades later, through Barsoma's eyes. But our monks don't give us much idea of what they saw. They say that they went to the great church at nearby Tessaphon, where the patriarch, the Catholicus of the Church of the East, was consecrated. That they went on to the monastery of St. Mary the Apostle. They went to Beth Girmai, where Ezekiel was said to be buried, to Sinjar, Nusaibin, and Mardin, Erbil and Mosul, to the shrines of saints, and everywhere they remarked on blessings received, relics visited, and the warm welcomes of their co-religionists. Rasabi has speculated that some degree of that warmth was due to mounting hostilities in the region, between the Muslims and the Buddhist and Christian communities. He's put forward the idea that these Mongol-favored visitors from afar were seen as potentially being very useful tools in those hostilities. And maybe he's right, because Barsoma and Marcos were not allowed to while away their time in the local monasteries for too long. They had arranged for a cell all to themselves, but quickly received word from the patriarch that he wanted to see them. And when he saw them, he said that he had heard of their doings and that the idea did not please him. He was not just happy to see these pilgrims from the east. He wanted to make use of them, perhaps saw in their arrival the apparent blessings of the Mongol Khan and wanted to take advantage of it. If you enter a monastery, he said, you shall only be furthering your own peace, whereas, if you stay, you can support the door of the kingdom with your hands and aid the entire community. He wanted them to go to the Ilkhan on his behalf and request a letter confirming his appointment as Catholicus. That business done, they would be permitted to continue on to Jerusalem, as they had wanted. Well, this was perhaps more a case of aiding the patriarch than of aiding the community. But then, the monks had at least managed to maneuver their own goal onto the itinerary, even if it meant they did have to go some seven to eight hundred kilometers out of their way. So off they went, from Baghdad to Tabriz, for a meeting with Abaka the Ilkhan. A meeting which is almost casually passed over in the text. Quote, and when the two monks went to the blessed camp, the emirs brought them in before the king, and he asked them about the object of their coming, and what their native country was, and they made a reply to him, which revealed unto him their object. And Abaka Khan commanded the nobles of his kingdom to fulfill their petition, and to give them the written orders which they had asked for. And the two monks sent the written order, which the Catholicus had demanded, to him by the hands of his messenger, and they and their companions set out for Jerusalem. And that was the full extent of their audience, with one of the most powerful people in the world. Within the perspective of the text, only a diversion on the road to Jerusalem, only a delay, and not one of the most serious ones. The road took them next through Armenian Ani, the city of a thousand and one churches, with so much to wonder at, 
and then on with an eye to finding a safe route onward. But that safe route was not to be found. They heard from people of the region that the way forward was cut by murders and theft, and perhaps by Mamluks. They heard that it was impossible to go any further in safety, and I have to think that this was not a casual mention from a man coming the other way. There must have been a seriously escalating narrative of an absolute bloodbath on the road ahead, because they traveled more than 6,000 kilometers as the crow flies to put them where they were, well north of 7,000 when you start to take into account the actual on-the-ground movement. They'd come all that way to visit all the holy sites of the region, but most especially, it seems, to visit Jerusalem. And now they gave up. They listened to the warning, very wisely, I'm sure, and they turned back. They went back to the patriarch, and he was again very happy to see them, for he had another little job in mind. But first, Denha applied the butter. The two visitors from afar had, quote, received blessings from all the houses of God and the shrines which were in them, and it was his opinion that when a man visited them with a pure heart, the service thus paid to them was in no way less than that of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Besides, it was no time at all to be going to that city. They had seen that for themselves. These niceties aside, he got down to what he really wanted. He wanted them to travel to China so he could take advantage of their good standing there. He wanted Marcos to be made metropolitan, a leader of the Church of the East in China, and Barsoma to be given his own office. High honors indeed, but though the monks wouldn't have known it at the time, being appointed by this patriarch would not end happily for the last man in Marcos' position. Simon had been named just the year before, but even before departing, had not been thought loyal to the patriarch, not loyal enough. Simon was said to have planned to make accusations against Denha to Kublai, and he would be ordered into a monastery in China. He'd escape, only to be recaptured, and then he and many of his followers would wind up dead in that monastery. It was a dangerous job, but Barsoma and Marcos didn't need to know of Simon's sad story, to know they weren't interested in the offer. However, they were going to need to go about their refusal gently, tactfully. His word was the same to them as the command of Christ, they assured their superior. But they had to give voice to what was in their hearts. They had come a very long, long way. They had come a long way, and they had not done so only to turn back now. They, quote, did not intend to endure a repetition of the hardship which they already had suffered. For the man who was tripped up twice by the same stone is a fool, and moreover, they declared that they were unworthy of this gift, and for defective creatures like themselves, a responsibility of this kind was much too difficult. But unfortunately for them, the patriarch did not agree. He saw the gift as an entirely suitable one, and he let them know it. The monks were out of excuses. Barsoma had spent years of his life in seclusion from wider society, but now he was very much in it very much involved in its politics, whether he liked it or not. He and Marcos could only agree. As luck would have it, though, the same issues that had plagued their attempt at the holy city now reared their head again, only this time in the monk's service. It was only a few days after the decisions had been made that news arrived that their way home could not be managed at that time. They were wholly cut off from traveling that way, for, quote, the hearts of the kings of the two frontiers were changed. 
which was of course all a rather poetic way of saying that the fighting between Kaidu and Kublai, never far from the surface, had boiled over again. To go would be perilous, beyond the usual dangers even, and perhaps impossible. Barsoma and Marcos would be staying for the time being, but they would be doing so in new and interesting circumstances, because before the trip had been called off, the ceremonies had gone ahead. A Syriac name had first been chosen for Marcos, the new metropolitan. Suitable candidates had been written and placed face down before the altar. And then pious divination had been used to make the selection. Where Marcos had been now stood Metropolitan Mar Yabalaha. Newly credentialed and one of them newly named, they then retreated back to the monastery and to the peace they'd been rudely yanked out of. There, as the text tells us, they sat down in their cell for two years, more or less. They turned their thoughts inward, or at least I think one of them did. It's entirely fitting and no accident that Marcos would become Metropolitan and not Barsoma. Remember, it had been the younger Marcos that was said to have inspired their journey in the first place, and maybe it's an invention of the text, but it's worth wondering if Barsoma would have ever stirred from his mountain retreat were it not for his more ambitious protege. Maria Balaha was a man with dreams. And this time, that dream was again quite specific. He dreamed that he had entered a great church, and in it, he saw images of the saints and among them the cross. He reached out his hand towards it to receive its blessing, but it receded from him, pulling away and up towards the roof, until he grasped it and kissed the cross. And then he went outside, where there were high trees full of fruit, and he plucked them and ate some, giving others to the people gathered all around. When he woke up, he shared his dream with Barsoma. What did his older colleague make of it? And I do in part wonder if he was not already very sure of what he'd make of it, if he knew that Barsoma would say that his arm outstretched for the blessings of Christ and the saints meant that he was to attain a great stature, greater than metropolitan, and that his shared enjoyment of the fruit meant that he was to enjoy a heavenly gift and to spread its joy to many people, or something of the sort. And the dreams returned. This time, Yabalaha was seated upon a high throne, with students gathered before him, hearing his teachings. As he talked, his tongue grew from his mouth longer and longer, and then dividing into three, with fire on the tip of each. The people watching marveled, and they glorified God. With this, Barsoma told him it was not a dream at all. It was a sign and a revelation that surely the patriarchal throne would one day be given to him so that he could complete his service. All he needed was an opportunity, and of course, in time it would come. It occurred to Yabalaha that he ought to go again to Baghdad to receive the patriarch's blessing. But as he neared his destination, news reached him. Denha was not yet buried, but he was dead. Yabalaha rushed on to the church to join the mourners. He tore at his clothes and wept in bitter anguish, falling to the ground in a manner which, though I don't want to cast judgment at 700 years' distance, may have been a trifle performative. For the table was set for him now to realize his dream. But we'll get to that next episode. That and the adventures of his mentor, Raban Barsoma. Thanks for listening, everybody. I very much appreciate you joining me on this journey. 
This one in particular, and on the podcast more generally. I will have another episode out around the end of the month, but this will be my last before Christmas. So, Merry Christmas, Christmassy folk, and Happy Holidays to all of you. I'll talk to you again soon. Human Circus will return.